Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Troy Noons is an Absolute Podcast. I'm your host, as always, John Casillo, and with me today is Dan Lyons. Hello, everyone. Happy, uh, if you live in New York City, you are probably a puddle of uh, human slop, because it is the hottest week I can ever remember in my life. Yeah, I've heard some accounts of it. Sounds pretty awful. And by week, I mean like three weeks. It's been absolutely absurd. (laughs) Today was actually not that bad comparatively, but it was like hot, mid to high 90s all weekend, and just, if there's a... I don't know if humidity goes over 100%, but if it doesn't, I think that science is wrong because I have never experienced a longer stretch of pure, miserable, thick heat in my life, and I've lived in the New York City area all my life, so that. Fair enough. Yeah, it's been hot here, but uh, we've been largely humidity-less. Of course, I have the benefit of the For the entirety of the history of Los Angeles. Yeah. Which is fun. I, uh... Although, you know what? If you get more, more inland, it gets worse. Out by the beach, it, it's a little bit better. Um, but I know plenty of people that are, uh, are closer to Burbank, closer to Hollywood, where it's been, you know, hanging around high 90s. Probably only about, like, 30 to 40% humidity, but still not really not really what any human being should want to live through, ever. Yeah, not, knock on wood. Um, apparently, it's going to, like, drop to the 80s, like, midweek. Uh, and I'm heading down to the shore, so it should be less humid there. At least I'll be, like, on the water, so that just negates a lot of it. But, uh, yeah, it's been rough. It's been a rough couple of weeks. Um, so, yeah, shout out to every all of our New York City listeners who are going through this one with me. And uh, remind me of this week, the first time I complain about winter. Fair enough. Um, okay, so today is our Coastal Division preview. Um, as is customary, we'll get to the uh, greater topic at hand kind of later on. I don't think that... We're going to need a full first half to discuss non-coastal topics, but um, for at least the first 15, 20 minutes or so, we'll probably discuss some other things. Um, we're recording earlier than normal, so there's not as much happening from the last time we spoke until now, but still, plenty of things going on. Um, first and foremost, the uh, ESPN's ACC blog released their initial power rankings. Um, power rankings are meaningless, as we all know, as are most rankings, especially before a game is played. Um and they put Syracuse last. Um, I figured that was coming after, um, you know, they, they published the uh, divisional predictions and, and other conference predictions back in June for the blog. And uh, everyone but, uh, but the esteemed David Hale, who is a loyal alum, uh, had us last. Um, so, of course, yeah, no surprise, Syracuse is 14th. Dan, how do you feel about that meaningless projection? Um. I don't know. I, I feel like after doing last week's preview, I kind of have a better understanding of why people are a little higher on Wake Forest and Boston College than I probably would have had at first blush. I think we kind of just worked through that live on this podcast last week. Um, so I get it. Like, I, I, it's fine. It's a, like you said, they're totally meaningless, but you have to do them because they do incredibly well. Uh, those of us in the media industry know the whole the whole deal with that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's a team that that wasn't very good for two years. Uh, you know, has some talent, but still, you know, in the bottom third of the talent pool in the ACC, and it's making a pretty radical shift in terms of play style and everything else. So I kind of get where the thinking is that Syracuse might be kind of bottomed out this year. Um, I am a little more optimistic, as I tend to be at this point in the season, just because I do think that, like, with Dungey, if he stays healthy, and Ish- Steve Ishmael, who I know we're going to talk about a little bit, and uh, a lot of the running backs and, and the defense that probably 
can't get worse in the secondary, as we bring up, like, just statistically, odds are it improves just by inertia. Um, I have, like, you know, a little bit of optimism that Syracuse will surprise some teams this year and, and be fairly competitive, but, uh, no, it doesn't shock me. Uh, maybe I'm a little surprised that, like, Virginia's getting as much credit as they are, and by credit, I mean they're, like, 11th in this. Um, but Brock Mendenhall is also, like, a, a pretty known qual- you know, uh, quantity, and Virginia's had some talent on that roster. That hasn't really been the problem for them. So uh, I get it. it. You know, it's it's hard to get too worked up about it. Yeah, and I felt the same way. You know, all, all fair critiques, really, um, in, in terms of both Syracuse and, and the other teams. I mean, like, like Sean said months ago, and we always kind of repeat, you know, perception's reality in college football, um, more so than just about anywhere else. Um, and if people see you as worse than a team, you are. And even, even if results, you know, don't really back that up. I mean, even if... BC and Wake get close to or near six wins, and Syracuse doesn't. Um, you know, Syracuse could still potentially beat both of them, and then to me, that means Syracuse is better, uh, just by the way. Uh, you know, the that determination usually works. Um, as most fans listening know, Syracuse has beaten Wake and BC five out of six times since um, SU entered the conference in 2013. Um, I I don't know if that trend is going to continue to the same severity. Um, this year, but even if we go one and one, that would still make us six of eight, um, which sounds pretty good. Um, and if we beat Wake, that'll be what the fifth straight victory against them. So yeah, I think uh, I think in general, fans are, are largely pissed about that one factor, the fact that we've beaten those two teams um, with, with some regularity of late. Um, I think the Virginia thing, yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think I think Mendenhall is getting a little more credit because he's in a more fertile recruiting grounds. He has better talent on the roster that was just woefully, you know, undermanaged by the previous regime. And, yeah, he's he, he did a great job um, at BYU where, you know, it's it's not that it's... I wouldn't say it's more difficult than it is to get talent there than it is to get it to SU, but I don't necessarily think it's easy to get, uh, you know, four-star talent to Utah um, with, with any sort of regularity. Um, if I you know, is based on nothing or numbers in front of me, just what I would what goes into going to BYU. Um, but yeah, I think those are in some order, and that's why I'm not like going to get overly nuts about it because a rankings are meaningless, and b like those four, your bottom four, um, in just about a- any survey anyone takes. Yeah, and I think that's fair, and I think the Virginia thing like that's kind of a weird look at it just because that's more based on like potential for long term and I do think Virginia uh, if you just take everything e- uh, all things equal I think Virginia probably does have more upside than Syracuse this is a greater like um, just like the profile of the school um, but overall I don't know that Virginia is going to have that much more success right off the bat because while you can say you know they don't have to play Clemson and Louisville and Florida State every year um, none of the teams that uh, none of the other teams in the coast are like walkovers were Syracuse I give them at least a fair shot of beating Wake and BC even this year so um, we'll see how it plays out that's the fun part of this we don't have to uh, this is like a debate for a couple weeks and then week one comes around and it's pretty much uh, we actually get to do you know see actual things happen yeah which is I think you know what makes college football both exasperating and fun uh, for us as fans and for others listening like it's such a, it's the longest off season. There's there's so much nonsense that goes on. There's so much luck and randomness involved in the game. It's it's just kind of college football becomes a ton of conjecture and and guesswork 
based solely on, you know, again, the length of the offseason, the factors involved in the game, and then, of course, the fact that the, the sport has been run by polls for the last 80 years. Um, so, yeah, all, all that kind of contributes to, you know, the wackiness that we know and love, at least. Um, and and we, it's what make the, it makes conversations like this um, so prevalent, uh, so heated, and, and really, you know, for those of us online, really drives conversation, discussion, views, etc. Um, because people just, you know, need, need to know, you know, who's who's ranked higher, even if the ranking doesn't matter. And and there's there's very little to base any of that on. Yeah, I think you can make a very uh, strong argument that college football wouldn't be nearly as fun if it wasn't as stupid as it is. Um, That's fair. And uh, I don't know that I want to make that trade. Like, there are a lot of things about college football I'd want to fix, but, like, the inherent just, like, stupidity of the general, the larger system, um, and I'm not talking about, like, NCAA, like, stupidness. I mean, like, just how the sport is works um, kind of gives it some of its, like, mad madcap charm. Yeah, I, I think that that's a, that's a great way to, to put it. It's almost a way, if you wanted to, and I'm not going to make this case myself, um, it's almost a way to, A, make a case for a nine-game schedule, and or, B... Um, make the case that the 20-game schedule for the ACC in basketball is a good idea because it adds to more randomness and there's less um, sort of known quantities. I feel like, you know, college football, a lot of that randomness comes from the fact that you have nearly 130 teams, most of which don't play each other. They play um, a small group of teams that they are, well, at one point were historically and geographically grouped with now, or TV market and a couple other factors grouped with but nonetheless, yeah, having having the the need to compare teams that, that don't really play like opponents that play so many different types of, of football and, and styles of play, um, yeah, that, that does uh, allow for more randomness. And yeah, I, I guess in some ways that does sort of make the nine game schedule a little more appealing. Um, kind of use that as a segue to talk about the vote that did not happen on Friday, um, or if it did happen, certainly didn't come to any sort of consensus. Uh, but what we do know is that 8 plus 2 and 9 are still on the table, probably shelved till October. Um, Dan, are you surprised that the vote didn't have an outcome? And do you feel like there's maybe a third option, like maybe the status quo sitting out there somewhere? Uh, it doesn't totally shock me because, like, we, we've talked about all the time, like, the ACC really does work um, kind of in the underground, and you don't really hear stuff leak before it happens. Like, it's actually... You know, you might hear, uh, you know, this is on the table for a meeting, but when a decision is made, the ACC is very good at announcing it themselves. Um, obviously, the ACC network there rumors for, like, months and years, but, you know, the actual announcement just came out. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely think that it's uh, pretty likely that the E plus one, the current status quo, is remains on the table just because... Um, It'd be a little surprising if the ACC made a move before the SEC did, and the SEC is in no uh, hurry to do that, um, just because those two conferences kind of track each other pretty consistently. And um, I just don't think that there seems to be any real consensus. I mean, I think there was a... I forget who it was that wrote up like a poll of the ACC coaches, and they were kind of all over the place uh, in terms of what they liked between the two options on the table or, or the status quo. So, um, yeah, it doesn't really surprise me that we didn't get this announcement right now. But uh, when it comes, I'm sure it will just pop up and we will all uh, scramble to react to it. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, like I think a lot of people would be happy with status quo. I think a lot of coaches would. I know when they did the poll at um, ACC kickoff um, last month, it was 12-2 to 2 in favor of, of the 8-plus-1 model. 
Um, the only two dissenters were Dino Babers, who was even like, I don't really care if we want to go to nine, fine. And Mark Richt, who caveated, said that, you know, his answer really just depends on where he's coaching. Um, and, and specifically said, you know, his, his former school, Georgia, he would want eight. He'd want eight of Florida State. But Miami, you know, nine makes more sense. Um, and I, as I mentioned before, I think some of that is a desire to maybe play Florida a little more frequently um, than they do now. Uh, for a little interstate rivalry, but yeah, I uh, I think we're gonna end up with something stupid like eight plus two, just because I think the the you know SEC rivals schools, the the Louisville's, Clemson's, Georgia Tech's, and Florida State's of the world, um, they hold too much power at the table um, to be completely ignored on this issue, and they shouldn't be ignored to be honest. Um, and I think that between them and the fact that you know there just isn't enough. There isn't enough reason to go to nine. I feel like they're gonna. ESPN is gonna force them to pick one of the one of those, despite the fact that eight plus one really is the most sustainable, uh, based on current schedules. Um, you know, booked up. I mean, Virginia Tech and Wake Forest are booked up pretty far out. Um, Syracuse is not. So a nine game or an eight plus two would probably help them. But you know, again, mathematically, it's it's not really possible for the ACC to to find two non conference teams. Unless you start making idiotic exceptions like the Big Ten did, you know, for UConn or Army or whatever, and all that does is just make the rule meaningless. And I hope, at the very least, that if that, the ACC is going to stick to something, that they just stick to it and they don't start, you know, coming up with all these other institutions that could potentially fill a gap or, or, or make exceptions, you know, five years out before everyone's finally on board. Again, just just seems there's a clear. There isn't a clear solution, but once you pick one of those, you have to just put a clear line in the sand and say that there's no passing one way or the other. Yeah, I agree with that. The, the Big Ten thing was, like, so so ridiculous. Like, you know, you want to have it both ways where I get, like, the BYU exception, but then you're throwing in, like, half the AAC. It's like, well, then why don't you just not have this rule? Like, if you don't want – if you want to be able to play these teams, like Army, who, who you know, love Army, they're non-competitive and it's the top of the Big Ten – like then, just don't have the rule. And, and the Big Ten's the bottom of the Big Ten. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> I was trying to be nice to the <laughs> to the Black Knights. Um, yeah, it's just I, I agree. I, I just think you know, choose something, stick with it, be consistent, um, and we'll just you know whatever they choose. We'll honestly we'll get over it after we our initial uh, reaction, and probably after like a year, like we'll 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 dig used to it. So I'm I'm not like I don't think it's at the end of the world. I also appreciate like uh, Mark Richt. Um, actually having nuance in a uh, conversation about uh, college football where things vary from school to school wildly. What is this? Does he, He's been around. Does he not get the memo that you are supposed to uh, strictly only say that, you know, whatever you want is the only way that something should happen uh, and not have the context of the school that you coach at uh, play in at all? Mark Richt has lost control of the narrative. <laughs> That's so good. <laughs> But yeah, hammering home in the Big Ten a little bit more. I know the other idiotic rule they have is that that no FCS teams rule, and a lot of people have said. No, Jimbo Fisher spoke up about it. It's really not sustainable for um, you know the ACC, and it really isn't good for college football either. Um, the ACC, obviously, you know they're in a lot of southern markets. A lot of southern states have rules um, in their legislature that you know the FBS schools, especially the Power Five schools, really need to help um, those smaller programs financially. 
Um, yes, it's a little bit of socialism in some ways, which might rub some people the wrong way. But, you know, overall, what's wrong with more football and more kids playing football and more kids getting opportunities um, to get an education? Um, you know, w- whether it's the schools in South Carolina or Georgia or Florida um, or some of the other states down there. I mean, there's plenty of North Carolina schools to play to. Um, cutting out, picking a nine-game schedule or picking an A-plus-2 is going to in- inevitably... Um, you know, pit these institutions up against their state legislatures. Um, and it, it's going to hurt some of these lower programs. And, you know, Jimbo was talking about kind of the, the trickle-down effect and how it could, you know, really start to potentially eliminate lower-level football and things like that. And you don't want to see that. Um, I know, and, you know, I mentioned this a couple of times, that Bill Connolly and others have pointed out that, you know, the Big Ten removing FCS uh, schools doesn't really do anything for, for strength of schedule at all because uh, the bottom of the MAC, the bottom of Sunbelt, bottom of Conference USA are, are in many years arguably worse than the top of FCS or at least a good 15 to 20 schools. Um, so yeah, again, silly rule. The Big Ten likes to, to, to make noise for the sake of making it. Um, and I just hope that the ACC doesn't follow suit just, you know, to to please ESPN when if you're partners, you can probably find a way to come to a, an amiable solution for both parties. Yeah, I actually really appreciated that from Jimbo. Um Obviously, like whenever someone makes a stance like that uh, in college football, and and this is like you know pretty much the opposite of the Mark Rich thing, like you can almost always assume it's fairly self-serving, uh, and it might be for him. Although Florida State is not really a school that needs to feast on FCS programs, but he's totally right, um, and it's it's not something that people think about all the time. But uh, that's like a major way for those FCS teams to you know make their budget for a year, and if you're taking away you know 14 schools from the possibilities, uh, the possible opponents, it's tough. Um, and it's very, it reminds me a lot of the, uh, back when we were still doing the, uh, satellite camp debates for like three months. Um, the point that, uh, I forget who, I don't think it was Harbaugh that made it himself. Might've been, but basically said similar thing about, you know, it's not just about Michigan going and finding players from Georgia. Like it just opens up exposure to, uh, all of the Mac schools opens up exposure to all the D2 schools and D3 schools that go attend those camps. So even if that's not like the main priority for a school in hosting a satellite camp, like, Michigan honestly doesn't really care about helping Eastern Michigan all that much, I don't think. Um, that is a byproduct of it, and it doesn't mean that the impact isn't real. Uh, so a ton of a similar thing here. Um, it, you know, taking away these these games against FCS opponents, while they're not, you know, great for fans, I guess, um, they do kind of prop up the ecosystem of the sport. Uh, and, and same thing, you know, you get rid of FCS programs, that's fewer scholarships uh, for potential college football players, and that kind of tumbles down, uh, down the line entirely, so... Um, I, I kind of am definitely on uh, Jimbo's side there, and I'm glad he made that point. Indeed. Um, and I guess one last thing before we get to halftime. Actually, surprised we even got this long. Um, one of the uh, at least outcomes from um, early part of camp and today, um, for listeners, this is recorded on Monday. It's probably going to go up Tuesday or Wednesday. Um, is the fact that Steve Ishmael is super excited. It seems like everyone um, is really getting involved from a receiver standpoint into this offense. Um, while you didn't hear his name really come up in the uh, brief game notes that SU provided from Saturday's scrimmage, um, we all know Ishmael is going to be a huge part of this offense. He's probably going to be the uh, number one receiver for the team. He's going to put up the best stats for the team um, in the passing game. I think uh, he knows it, and we all know it, and it's it's great to see you know, a player who's been underutilized for two straight years um, get a chance. Um, so I guess, you know, did you take anything from, from Ishmael's comments today? 
Um, was, was there anything surprising? I know he not only mentioned himself, but he seemed to mention you know, a couple other players, including uh, a freshman, Devin Butler, who uh, seemed to you know, put some, some early impressions on him early on. Yeah, I mean, it's always good to hear. And this is, you know, it, while it's, I'm fine getting excited over it, like, you hear this stuff every time there's a new coaching staff, honestly. Like, it's not that far out. Like, very rarely does a new coaching staff come in, and in August, the, the players are like, uh, this kind of sucks. <laughs> um, but I, I buy that this was pretty legitimate coming from him, especially because, you know, I think he realizes that, you know, hey, I'm one of the, the few, like, true blue NFL prospects on this team. And he's kind of overcome uh, really shaky offenses to put up really solid numbers. I mean, 570 yards uh, and seven, 39 catches, like, that's not, you know, huge. But for college football, there's plenty of receivers that don't hit those marks. And that was with Zach Mahoney, who we all love for what he did last year, um, not the best passer in the world. Uh, Eric Dungy playing half the year, having this t- crazy quarterback situation. And he put up those numbers really solid against ACC competition and seven touchdowns, which is really nice. Um, there's a chance, like you said, if if Baber's offense is running at like 50% proficient, uh, proficiency in the first year, he should be a 1,000-yard receiver um, without much of an issue, uh, especially if the quarterback situation holds up. So uh, I'm excited that he's excited. Uh, and I thought the real the, the killer quote here was the uh, Coach Baber's he's not afraid to do anything uh, quote, um, which I try not to read too much as like a comparison to the Lester McDonald whomever else uh, eras. Um, but I think it also it kind of reaffirms what we know about Babers. Like, he's going to put these players in a position to run his offense, and mistakes will probably be made. I'm sure there will be a couple. I bet there's, like, one game this fall that is absolutely abysmal, and we all, like, feel really terrible about it afterwards, where there's, like, four or five interceptions and everything just looks totally out of sync. And that's probably going to come along with this development of the new offense. Um, but I, I don't think it's going to freak Babers out. I think he's so so affirmed in his belief that his offense works and he's, you know, done it for four years and it's been great for four years, that uh, I, I get why he is, like, quote, unafraid to do anything. Like, he just knows what he's going to do. And it's so different from what we've had basically since Coach P running the freeze option. Like, yeah. even under Marone, that offense was different from year to year. I mean, you could argue maybe the second half of 20, uh, of the uh, the final Ryan Nassib year, uh, 2011 uh, or 2012. God damn it, I'm losing my mind. 2012. Um, I guess they kind of knew what they were doing by the second half of that year when they really streamlined things and got Jerome Smith the ball every you know chance they got. Not the first but, half. Um, not the first half. The first half was a mess. Well, the first uh, game was started. fine, and then everything else kind of collapsed for the next four. Yeah, we all kind of forget how like shaky that year was to start. Um, but like that second half of that year was like the closest we had. And, I mean, the, the last time Syracuse knew exactly what its identity was on offense for an entire season was way before I was rooting for this team. So just having that, even if that only translates to like four or five wins the first year, like that's so exciting. And I'm glad that uh, everyone's buying in. And I know that was like a strange worry after we fired Schaefer because, you know, we're the first college to ever fire a coach, you know, semi-controversially, uh, but not really. Um, so yeah, I, I'm, you know, continue to... Uh, get more and more excited for this season coming up because just just for that like i think things even if like we have some really rocky moments this fall i think we'll be very more assured in like what we're doing and what this team is supposed to look like and that's kind of a new thing for us in in recent syracuse history yeah i mean honestly i'm fine with and i'm not rooting for a five interception game but if we have a five interception game doing exactly what we know babers 
is telling the players to do and exactly what this, the scheme is designed to do. And we're just, you know, we're losing to either it's just an off day for Dungy or it's, you know, facing a very good secondary um, and, and just things breaking the wrong way. You know what? Like, again, I'm not thrilled about it, but, but I can understand how those things happen against more talented teams. I mean, right now we have a scheme that is that is designed to, to help even out the gap uh, in talent that we have with some of these other programs. But, um, you know, we've only been recruiting for it for about a month total. Um, you know, if you look at just the, the 2016 class and what Babers and his, his staff were able to do. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that, you know, these things are going to happen. Um, obviously, as long as they, they don't happen super often and they, they don't, you know, become the norm, um, I, I, I think it's fine. I think it's, there's going to be some growing pains, and, and that's great. And I think, like you said, um, you know, Baber's system is supposed to set up these athletes to succeed. I think it's going to set up guys like Ishmael to succeed, but I think it's going to you know, trickle down all the way. Like we're going to be looking at a lot of different um, you know, wide receivers in there. Some guys that you probably didn't think would see the field. Um, you know, whether that's a, a Jacob Hill or whether that's a you know maybe even a Scoop Bradshaw on offense. Um, you might see a guy like Devin Butler really kind of you know it looks like more and more he's getting a lot of buzz and could play a role, a key role um, in this offense. Jamal Custis was getting some buzz today and hopefully you know goes into that jump ball offense you and I have been rooting for for two years. Um, and then uh, the Maryland transfer uh, Amba Edatawo he. Uh, it seemed like he he really did a great job um, in that scrimmage. Obviously, you know, take the scrimmage for what it is, but he's another guy who seems like you know he could potentially supplant someone like Alvin Cornelius um, as that fourth receiver option and become maybe a, a better deep threat than even uh, Brisley if uh, if the cards fall right. Yeah, we talked about this today. It really seems like if we know anything about uh, what these first few years under Babers looks like, it's going to be a lot of wide receivers playing. Just based on like guys like Stu Bradshaw, who I think we all thought were just going to be a DB and, and may still be, we don't really know, um, playing some receiver. It just seems like all hands are on deck in that position. And then you look at the recruiting, and we have like 18 receivers committed for next year. So uh, clearly, he, I mean, it's kind of weird to say he doesn't have trust in the guys on campus because some of our, our most exciting players are wide receivers. But uh, maybe it's like partly that, partly conditioning, not being totally where he wants it. And he just wants to be able to go so fast and swap out players as much as he wants. So having like eight or nine guys that can play receiver, you know, at least, you know, somewhat proficiently is, is really important for his offense. Uh, so that's, that's going to be something to keep an eye on, I think, in the first couple games to see how many guys get reps there and how wide ranging the still sets are. Agreed. And I know he's obviously not going to want to show his cards a ton against Colgate, but um, I think that might be the lowest receiver total we see. Um, just because I think we're going to look at, you know, the starters will be out there early. We'll probably pull for some of the reserves by the second half, hopefully with a, with a large lead. And then, you know, the team will be kind of relegated to running the ball um, toward the end of that one, um, as long as the uh, the lead looks like it should and, and the game is going the way we want it to. Um, you know, I'm, I'm never going to, after the Villanova game a couple years ago, I'm never going to, to count anything until it's over ever again. Uh, and, and that's just the, the, the scar that I wear, <laughs> and I'm sure many others do as well. But yeah, I think Colgate will give us a glimpse of what's to come, but, but not really a full read. Uh, the Louisville game will be a much, much better read and a much more, I think, entertaining game for fans. This is really kind of, I feel like Babers and the team are building this up internally as a chance to ambush a ranked team. And, and, and that's, I mean, that's got to be fun for us, especially against Louisville, who's been a bit of a, a thorn in our side um, of late. 
Yeah, no, I think that's right. And especially because we've now hit, like, peak. Uh, uh, told you it might be kind of good season here. Yeah, they're top 25 right now, FCS, anyway. Yeah. All right, and on that note, uh, time to talk some beer. Dan, what have you been drinking? <laughs> I think this is probably the first weekend in a long time I legitimately did not have a beer. Um, yeah, no, it, was, it wasn't, like, totally by design, but I was, like, I have two or three, like, really ridiculous, actually, like, four really ridiculous weekends coming up, so I was trying to take it easy, and I had some other stuff, I had a couple, like, Mossdale mules here and there, and my family made some sangria for some reason for a family dinner, uh, but no beer, I, I legitimately don't think I had a beer this weekend, so I don't remember the last time that happened, and I don't know the next time that will happen, um, but I have literally nothing to contribute here, so... Uh, hopefully, you know, this weekend I'll be down in Jersey. Next weekend I'll be in Las Vegas. Uh, are there any Las Vegas breweries I should be going to, by the way? I meant to ask you this. Uh, Might as well do it on air here. Yeah, there's a, there's a couple. But really, I wouldn't bother going to the breweries as much as going to... Um, there's a couple legit bars on the Strip, and I will send you those offline because I don't have them off the top of my head now. But yeah, there, there's a couple spots... I mean, it's going to be hot, so you're not going to want to drink too much heavy stuff, obviously. But Yeah, for sure. Um, th- yeah, there's definitely a couple good spots. Um, depending on, you guys are staying on Central Strip, or you're staying like, off Strip? We're, like, a slightly off. Gotcha. All right, yeah. I mean, you should be able to get to everything. Um, yep. yeah, I'll, I'll, give you a, I'll give you a bit of a rundown uh, via Slack. You know, cool. you, you just have, so you have a game plan. Yeah, I mean, we have a lot of time to chill, so I'm, I'm looking to make the best of it. And if anyone, uh, out, any of my our, our steam listeners out there want to uh, Twitter send me or DM me some uh, Vegas uh, tips, I fully welcome it. Perfect. All right, so what did I drink this past weekend? Um, I had um, Oddwood Ales in Texas. They had their... Uh, Saison that my buddy sent me. It was very good, actually. Uh, one of the better Saisons I've had all year. Uh, Modern Times down in San Diego had their uh, Whizbang IPA. Um, I drafted a couple places. Also had uh, Noble Ale Works uh, HBC 429 Showers, just their uh, Showers um, double IPA series that they've been putting out. Um, Firestone Walker opened a, a new spot over in Venice, and I finally got up there. Um, it's not as easy to get over in that direction now that I live uh, further south. But got to have um, Unite the Funky Damsels. Uh, it's one of their wild ales, as well as uh, Luponic Distortion, uh, which is a good staple. Um, also headed down to uh, Ballast Point's Long Beach location uh, once again, um, and had Sculpin' with Coffee, which was uh, very good, actually. They, they really struck a nice balance there and had like just the right amount of coffee, where like you knew it was there, but you didn't feel like it overtook the beer too much. Um, and then I had the uh, Tart Orange uh, Wahoo White, uh, from Ballast Point, and again, like had like the right amount of tartness. Uh, you definitely got some fruit flavor, but it wasn't overwhelming. It was uh, was refreshing on a very hot day. That was my uh, that was my drinking for the weekend. I'm generally not a huge fan of coffee beers. Uh, I think just because I've had like one or two that I really didn't like agree with me. But uh, I will try any stolpen that they decide to make. So I will be on the lookout for that. Yeah, I mean, I would think at this point they'll probably have some like special tap or something. Um, by you, and even if it's like a Dallas Point Tap takeover or something like that, you'll probably find it. But on that note, uh, Dan, do you want to start at the bottom of the coastal, or do you want to start at the top of the coastal? Um, what is the top? What does the top of the coastal look like? 
Um, yeah, it's the coastal. I feel like coastal's like a. I don't even know what shape this is, but it's just like a flat thing and then like a little stem. <laughs> That's Virginia. A little, a little Virginia stem. <laughs> well, the, for me, the top of the coastal is in some order: uh, North Carolina, Pitt, Miami, um, and then I've got kind of Georgia Tech, Virginia Tech on, on another run. And what else? And then, and then Virginia. Duke, Virginia. Yeah, and Duke, Virginia. And who knows where Duke is? I don't really know where Duke is. I, I, I don't know why I'm separating them out from Georgia Tech. I just feel like this is a step back here for Cutcliffe. I just feel like the Coastal's too good. I feel like things kind of fell apart a lot at the in the second half of last year for Duke. I don't know if it was like a mental thing or it was a system thing or, or the athletes or injuries. It just It just sounded like... <sighs> Everything just went off the rails after that stupid Miami game. Yeah, that that really did seem to have like I don't know if it had like an emotional impact, but that and then you get you know you have to face a really good UNC team the weekend after. I guess we're starting with Duke. <laughs> then you have to face a really good UNC sure, team the week after, um, and UNC just absolutely whacks them sixty-one to thirty-three. That was awful. Uh, I mean, that, which wasn't that game in football's like, bad? Wasn't it like <laughs> weren't they already in like the forties by halftime? It was like. Yeah, I think there was, like, talk of, like, is UNC about to, like, just murder Duke's program completely? And Duke, like, put up some points in the second half. I, I'm pretty sure that's how that game went. Um, I'll, I'll actually look it up while we're talking here. Because I remember, uh, like, the typical ACC Twitter, we were all, like, just laughing our asses off. <laughs> no, it legitimately... Because there's two Duke fans on, on ACC Twitter. Um, it's uh, Ben Swain and then, uh, what's his name? Sorry in advance. I don't have any. I don't have it up. But there's like two Duke fans on Twitter, and they weren't even like that mad about it. It was just kind of like, ah, oh, crap. So at half, or, so it was through three quarters. It was fifty-nine to Duke actually put up some points like throughout. It was like fifty-nine to twenty-four. Um, yeah, it was just like it looked for a while like UNC might actually drop like seventy or eighty, and they just let up, and it was a seven-seven fourth quarter, like one of those. But uh, very ugly. Um, and UNC was really good. So, like, that, that wasn't saying that Duke was, like, a terrible team. But, yeah, they had the Miami screwball game. And then they had UNC absolutely crush them. And then Pitt, which is really hitting its stride, uh, didn't play a really ridiculous 50s uh, game against Duke for the first time since the ACC started, I believe. Uh, and then they lost to Virginia, which is bad. Um, and, and then they, they bounced back be and beat Wake. Wake. But they struggled to beat Wake. Yeah, they did struggle to beat Wake. Then they won uh, a very con- a who knew who knew this would happen a controversial pinstripe bowl. <laughs> pinstripe bowl is sneaky, sneaky except for that Rutgers Iowa State game. That nobody. Uh, I guess Notre Dame Rutgers was real boring, uh, but as, except for the Rutgers games, um, the pinstripe bowl every year is kind of crazy. Yeah, I. I, I so by every year, I mean sixty percent of the time. It's one of my favorite bowl games, not just because a I've been to it and b Syracuse is the you know pinstripe bowl. Uh, all-time leader in wins, but also yes. because, yeah, it's just a fun game. There's just a, Because weather is always a factor, there's just a stupidity element in there that isn't there for ball games most of the time. And you, and you tend to get those, like, mid-tier, it used to be mid-tier, Big East, Big 12, now it's mid-tier, ACC, Big 10, Which and especially if you, yeah, if you get, like, an Indiana, like, last year, like, Indiana-Duke, I knew that game was going to be fun, heading in. Like, that, that game was bound to be in the 40s, and it was, and it ended on a ridiculous field goal that we still don't know if it went in, <laughs> if I remember correctly. Um, and, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's for whatever reason, I think it just, that game works out to be pretty good most of the time. Um, 
And that's all you really want from like a middling bowl game, Syracuse or not. Like I just want a doofy game that of a matchup that I'm not going to see that often and uh, have some some something stupid happen. Again, college football is somehow made better when the stupidity is at like a you don't want it like like Duke Miami stupid, although that was kind of fun in retrospect, but like a nice level, a nice base level of stupid. Yeah, I, I can buy into that. Um, <laughs> wrapping up Duke a little bit here. Um, I just think they lose too many, too many everyone. It, it's it's just a lot of folks gone. <laughs> I, I don't think that there's there's enough. I mean, obviously Duke has elevated its level of incoming talent. Um, I just think they might be a year away. That's why you know I said that this is probably a step back year. Um, Cirque is still questionable um, whether or not he's going to be ready. Um, I do buy into Jalen Duncan and Sean Wilson. Uh, it would be surprising to see a run-heavy, uh, running back-centric, run-heavy um, Duke team, but that might be what we're looking at. I think the experience at receiver probably isn't what they're looking for, nor is it on the offensive line. Uh, and then, the, you know, for on the defensive end, um, you know, the, the front seven's really not all that experienced. Um, they, they've got experience, you know, in, in the back end. So this actually, to be honest, looks a lot like when Duke started this kind of run of, uh, of, of mild success, um, you know, with that, uh, that six and six or what, six and seven campaign when they barely lost to Texas A&M in that ball game. Like, I just remember Will Monday's punt was so glorious. Oh yeah. <laughs> I remember a lot about that team for some reason. Cause I remember that was like, they, they won the victory bell against UNC and it was like a really fun, like, I, I mean, I don't, I hate Duke basketball, but I have no problem with Duke football. And I remember like, I remember that game vividly for some reason. Um, as I do other random things in life. Um, and yeah, I thought that was fun, but I thought that team was, was really, a lot of it was based on um, a really strong secondary and just a not great uh, front seven, and that's kind of where we're back at, at least this year. But again, I don't think this is a permanent step back. I think this is a rebound um, for Duke. So I think that you know maybe they step back to five and seven, four and eight, um, but not like a bad five and seven or four and eight this year, and then they are able to, to fix that next year. Yeah, I'm mean, I buy into that. I think um, just in general, like it, you're going to have a little bit of regression. Like these these turnarounds um, don't like happen without uh, step backs here and there, uh, generally. And Tom Cliff has had such a he's done such an amazing job there that I think you can forgive a, a fair amount of that. Um, I think it all. I think Cirque is really the, the linchpin. And I, I know I'm saying the quarterback is important. You know, real hot take there, but. Um, I'm really interested to see what this offense looks like because I don't expect it to be uh, the classic touchless offense. I almost think just based on Cirque, what we know of him, it almost might wind up looking like a souped-up version of like the Zach Mahoney offense from last year where he's running a lot. You don't really know what he can do with his arm, although he was fairly efficient last year. Um, but yeah, I, I'm, they're, they're, they're going to be an interesting team. I don't know if they'll be that good. But uh, generally, I, I don't mind watching Duke, and, and I'm... I'm definitely intrigued to see what they uh, what they do with this offense. I would agree. Now, looking a little bit across the triangle, um, North Carolina Tar Heels. I uh, I've long been a Tar Heel apologist from my days um, as a split Syracuse North Carolina fan growing up. Um, I hate North Carolina basketball now, but I still casually pull for North Carolina football just because, to me, like I don't know, I, I for some reason just find their success entertaining. Um, because, at least in my lifetime, they've been pretty terrible at football for most of it. Um, North Carolina, to me, was a very good football team last year, probably about the top 15, not the top 10 they might have uh, been thought of at one point. 
I think this year they're probably in the top 15 to 20. But again, you know, it's not really like that much of a stretch to say that quarterback, you know, once again kind of guides the ship. Um, you know, Marquise Williams is gone, and his place is Mitch Trubisky. I thought Trubisky um, was good in, in the spurts that he's kind of seen the field. I think the Trubisky does have a very strong arm. I'm, I don't know if you've seen that video. Um, I forgot exactly what he cleared, but it was... I remember when I watched it, I thought distance-wise, it was just a very, very... I mean, you know, those throws are what they are, but uh, Trubisky does have a strong arm. He is uh, fairly accurate deep. Um, I think this team is a lot of depth um, and a lot of experience um, across the line at receiver where Ryan Switzer is one of the best receivers in the conference. I think Elijah Hood is arguably the second best running back in the conference. Um, and then defensively, I, I do think they've taken some steps forward. Um, uh, yeah, and that's right. I was about to, because we talked about this last year too, is that surprise, Gene Chizik's still the defensive coordinator there. Um, he didn't go take some Mac job like some might have thought he could have. Um, and yeah, I think Chiswick is going to do a good job here once again. Um, and I could see North Carolina, despite they do have a tougher schedule. I mean, they've got Georgia. They're at Florida State. Um, there's definitely some pitfalls early on. But if they can get out of that early um, part of the schedule fairly unscathed, the Heels are once again looking at a Coastal Division title and maybe even more. Um, and again, I think that, that rides on Trubisky, who I, I do buy into more than maybe most do. Yeah, I think um, I don't think it's too crazy to call them. I mean, I think they probably deserve to be called the favorite uh, after winning last year. Obviously, replacing Marquise Williams won't be easy, but Trubisky has looked good in limited time. Like you said, he's a very different player. Um, he's not going to run nearly as much as Williams did. Um, but they have a lot of weapons. I mean, you said Hood could be the second best running back in the in the conference. I think that's you know it's pretty you know a big gulf after Dalvin Cook, but. Between him and Dolman and a couple other guys, I, I don't think that's totally unfair. And TJ Logan's a really nice rusher, too. Um, so they have a, a nice group there. Um, and, and I like their receivers, too. Ryan Switzer uh, is quite good. I don't. It'll be interesting to see how he holds up with Quinshaw Davis not taking off the top of defenses. Uh, but Davis kind of had some weird years down the stretch after, I think, two years ago. He had a really big year, and he never quite got back to that level. Yeah, his freshman uh, um, year was huge. Yeah, he had like a 1,000-yard season, and then he's never quite gotten there again. Um, and now he's in the NFL, so he won't. Uh, or I don't even know if he's in the NFL, but he's not in college anymore. Um, but Switzer's a nice player, obviously a, a terrifying kick returner. Um, Buck Howard's still on the team, right? There was a bug someone. I think it was, no, I think it was Pig Howard from Tennessee got tipped off. Yeah, Pig's gone, Bug's still there. Pig's gone, Bug is Bug remains. Um, and he's quite, he's pretty good as well. Uh, they bring back Matt Collins. So... Uh, yeah, I think I think this is a, an interesting team. Assuming Trubinsky, uh steps in at, as a starter without too many hiccups, um, and like you said, defensively, I mean, Chizik engineered a really big turnaround in that end. Um, I I don't know that they'll have quite the ceiling they did last year, but and, and I don't know that like that first game against Georgia is really tough because Georgia, while they'll be finding themselves under Kirby Smart, is going to have a pretty distinct talent advantage, uh, especially if Nick Chubb can play with you know at eighty five percent, which it seems like Nick Chubb's going to play. Uh, in week one, uh, Sony Michelle might not. Um, but yeah, uh, things really aren't like you said. They're not too easy. Illinois, they should handle. James Madison, they should handle. But like Pitt at Florida State, Virginia Tech at Miami, um, not an easy stretch. Yeah, but if you, to be honest, if you have two losses or less at the after the October fifteenth mark, then then you're talking about something here. Well, yeah, and I mean, then you you play Virginia, you have the bye. 
Georgia Tech will get to, like, who knows with them, honestly. Um, that's, you know, theme for the, the ACC Coastal. Really, just the, every single year. Who knows? Right. Like, last year ended up being, okay. last year ended up being, like, you know, we finally had North Carolina sleeping giant, like, wake up for a year. Um, but most years it's just like, yeah, someone might win nine games. Um, but yeah, I, I like this team a lot, uh, and I will be interested to see how they navigate that beginning stretch. But, I mean, the Coastal, as usual, like, you could win it with three losses. So, we'll see how they do. Indeed. Uh, is moving over to Georgia Tech, since you mentioned them. Um, this team's stupid. I, uh, I'll admit, though, you know, where I was at first ready to call this another, like, bad campaign and a losing season in the last season for Paul Johnson um, and the death of the triple option in, uh, in power <laughs> conference football. I think this team's due for a rebound. I don't think that they're going to be rebounding to a coastal title. But I could see seven wins here. I mean, last year they were just rabid with injuries so badly. Um, I think that you're going to know a lot about this team after the Vandy game on September 17th. Um, I think, you know, Vandy, while they're not great on offense, I think the defense is really going to be um, one of the you know more stout uh, units that Georgia Tech faces. Um, obviously, you get losses against Clemson, maybe Miami, maybe at Pitt. Um, you got at North Carolina and at Virginia Tech in consecutive weeks, which is kind of rough in November. And then after a week of Virginia, you have at Georgia. Um, so yeah, Georgia Tech, there's definitely losses on this schedule, but there's also some wins. Uh, if this team can rebound from injury last year, if Justin Thomas can look like three quarters of the player he looked like two years ago, uh, I think this team can win six or seven games and might be enough, should be enough to, to keep Paul Johnson his job. Though admittedly, and you and I have talked about this before, uh, Georgia Tech, in part because of where they're located in Atlanta, but just overall, it just their ability to recruit talent is, is vastly underwhelming. And uh, it's sort of a shame, uh, all things considered. Yeah, I'm actually a little more bullish on Georgia Tech, if only because their injuries problem last year was significant like they got really really beat up by injuries coming off of a, a 2014 team that was really like excellent that was a great team um i don't think they'll be that good again and i don't think they're gonna win three games i think they should be back in bowl the bowl realm um assuming the injury bug doesn't come and bite them again um justin thomas you know two years ago like you said was really good last year uh not as much but he was you know dealing with you know everyone around him dying um so that wasn't great uh, I think there, like if there was going to be some natural regression to the mean from 2014 to 15, um, I don't think it was supposed to be dropped from what 11 wins to three. Uh, and I think you'll see, you should see some pretty uh, crazy regression back to the uh, the other side. Um, and I, I think six or seven is is probably on the on the nose. Um, unfortunately, this team has to go to Ireland to play their first game, which is silly. Oh, uh, yeah, we talked about that last week with BC, like. That's such a just a dumb thing to do, but I guess you're you'd rather open with it than sink in the middle of the year. Um, at least they have Mercer after that. Um, I, I'm just as as like a grander point. Uh, yeah, like Georgia Tech. I get that they're not going to be Georgia, and and Atlanta is very much a like Georgia first, and then just general SEC second, and then maybe Georgia Tech third uh, city. But there's so much talent in that state and in that general, that immediate area. And Georgia, for a long time, just owned it. And they're still doing really well. You're just now starting to see some of the other SEC teams really 
focus fire on Atlanta. And I feel like Georgia Tech just, like, had this, like, they, I get going with the triple option and trying to be different and trying to win that way, but you could have probably built a really nice coastal, like, conventional, I guess conventional being, like, college running the spread and, um, you know, trying to win like every team wins. Like, I, you're not at such a weird, you're not at a disadvantage at all by being in Atlanta. Like, you're, you actually have a, a huge uh, advantage just having all that talent sitting there. And in that case, you think you'd want to build a team like that can go plug in pretty much anyone and just take all those four-star players that you get as runoff from Georgia and find a system to have them win. And instead, they have this this spread option, which is, you know, when it's really good, it's fun. And I get, you know, but you're, you're recruiting from such a smaller base now. I just don't know that that's the school where this should be happening. Like, I think BC would make more sense to run a triple option. Oh, absolutely. Because half those schools in Massachusetts are running that anyway. Yeah. They're running like wing tees. DC, Penn State, um, I mean, non-major conference. You're looking at UConn, like obviously the the Penn State's going to take this. As, if, if any Penn State fans are listening, they're going to <laughs> blow up your email. That's fine. I, I, I... <laughs> don't care. <laughs> no, but I did yeah, to be honest. Like it's such a waste of talent. Like between this, you know, for for seven or eight years now down in in Atlanta for Georgia Tech. <laughs> um, Georgia's lost some ground to a lot of the other SEC teams to Clemson to North Carolina too. To be honest. Um, yep. Who were just really recruiting Georgia well. I mean, you look at like some of the top recruits, um, you know, incoming for Georgia Tech. There's no reason why a school located in Atlanta should have no players from Atlanta proper, though Duluth right there. Um, but six out of ten are from Georgia. Now, like I don't, again, I just don't think that you should have to really extend your net that far. And Georgia's had to do it too, and it's all because, in part, because Johnson's system kind of detracts, you know. It repels talent in terms of the traditional sense and what the ratings might look like. Um, and then again, you know, Georgia, it's, it's just you can only defend your home turf for so long um, if, if you're not going to, you know, surpass results. LSU and Alabama and Auburn and Florida are going to be able to walk right into your backyard and take that talent. Um, and so I think that that's kind of the existential crisis that you're seeing with, with Georgia Tech and, and Georgia. I think Georgia State and Georgia Southern elevating um, I know Georgia Southern was running a similar offense to Georgia Tech, but um, having two schools that, you know, might have slightly more wiggle room in terms of qualifying, um, that can definitely help, and that can also take away from players who might have otherwise uh, committed to, you know, Tech and UGA. Um, it's an interesting time, I think, just in general, to, to see kind of Georgia football, well, the state of Georgia football. Um, and, yeah, I, I don't know if Georgia Tech has the horses anymore but of course i said that two years ago to get back to the acc's elite with the current kind of way things have been going yeah and speaking of like existential crisis i know like the weirdest thing you could possibly do is hire a coach based on what your next coaching hire would be but if you do fire paul johnson if you hire a then like a you know if you hire like a spread offense uh guy to try or or a power off or any kind of other offense guy like anyone else you're probably looking at, like, an extra year or two on the rebuild compared to what a normal school would have to go through. So, you do you the then... Trenches, though. Yeah. But the, I guess on offense. On defense, you you know, they are who they are. But um, would you then, like, pigeonhole yourself further and maybe go, like, try to hire Willie Fritz? No. I think if you... I think you, just have, I think you just have to hard reset and, like, deal with the consequences for a couple of years. Yeah. And because you're still in Atlanta, and you still have that talent where, like, maybe it wouldn't even take as long as, like, if, if uh, another school... 
went all in on the on the spread option for a long time and then tried to get out of it. Yeah, um, you know that's what I commended like the Syracuse administration for doing with Schaefer. I mean, no, he wasn't completely recruiting for an option, but but the 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 non offense he was recruiting for had some <laughs> had some very bad implications long term for when we he eventually got fired. And, and it's good that that only lasted about a year and a half before we decided to hit reset. Yeah, and they just went for it with the best possible. I mean, I I, I truly believe the the you know quote unquote barf art Ryle system is like one of the best possible ones that you could put into the into the dome that of what exists in the college football landscape so i totally agree there and we're coming from such a bottom place that like who cares right i guess shifting a little bit since we still have a couple more teams to talk about um i i think few people and no i think few teams excuse me get such polarized responses as Miami, um, when anyone pulls them about them at all, I think for the last now almost 10 years, um, you know, a team that was supposed to dominate the Coastal and, and sit on the opposite side of Florida State in every ACC championship game, um, the, only year <laughs> that they, that. Yeah, the only year they should have made it, they were ineligible. Um, well, they were self-banned from, from bowls. Um, I really bought, bought into uh, Brad Kaya. I think that... You know, this offense, I mean, Stacey Cauley's a great receiver. I think in general, this offense looks really good. I think the defense has some potential. But I just, they're a rung below the top of this league, and that just becomes problematic, especially in a year that you also have to face Notre Dame. Are, are you saying that the U is not back? I'm saying that the U is not back, but the U could still win eight or nine games despite not being quote-unquote back. Okay. Just had to establish that. And I also think that um, you are likely to get a wide range of responses of uh, talking about Miami with fans unless you try to sell them tickets to a Miami game, in which case the response is overwhelmingly in one direction. Um, unless it's a Florida State game. Uh, in that yeah. case, they're a Florida I'm State actually, game. Yeah, Go true. <laughs> talking about the Knowles. Um I'm actually really excited for Miami this year. Is that, is that, is that dumb? No, that's not dumb. Mark Rick's a great coach. Georgia was stupid for firing him. Yeah, and I, I get why Georgia fired him. Like, I conceptually, I get it. I don't think I agree with it, but I get it. Um, I think Miami, like, the smartest thing they could have done was hire Mark Rick. Because, like, even if Mark Rick doesn't get them back to, like, national championship level, which, you know, considering Mark Rick didn't get Georgia there, probably the case. You just, like, just getting them back to where they're going to win nine or ten games and getting them to an ACC title game would be such a nice step forward for them. And I don't think Ritz going to be coaching there that much that long because he is, like, in his 60s. Uh, this is a really nice retirement gig for him, I think. Um, odds are he's not the national championship coach for Miami. But I think Miami fans are probably so disillusioned that, like, just getting them even sniffing the conversation uh, of, like, oh, maybe they can make a, uh, a New Year's Six team this year. Um, while that's not the end goal and Miami fans will never admit to that, like, that would just – I think it would be good for the sport just because Miami is still a brand. And I think uh, it would just be really good for that fan base to at least get some kind of energy. Because while we all make fun of Miami for, like, no one going to their games and them being, like, the most fair-weather fan base on earth, I think college football would be more fun with them being, like, some kind of a factor. I agree. Um, And I think, you know, Rick, if, I mean, he was at Miami before Miami was the U. Like, he's an alum, but it wasn't like he was coaching or playing with Ray Lewis. Like, very different school when he was there. But I think he probably gets the whole thing more than most people. 
Um, and I think that is a school where, for you know, all their warts, uh, they do have a very strong like alumni base, um, and they have a very strong you know, like we all we make fun of like, the Syracuse fans who are like dedicated to you know peeping everything in the family. With Miami, you almost get it because there's so much NFL talent that's come out of there. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I just think. Um, this is a good hire, and I think he. This is actually a really good situation for him too, because this team, like you said, has talent. They have probably one of the ten best quarterbacks in college football um, in Brad Kaya. They have, you know, pieces across the roster, and uh, I, I'm I'm very intrigued. I, I don't think they are going to win the Coastal this year, but it's definitely in play, and uh, I would like to see them be competitive. And that feels weird to say, but I, I just think it would be a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you know what? Like last year, I think everyone saw a very underwhelming eight and five, um, just because of what it entailed. You know, they barely beat an underwhelming Nebraska team. They lost to Cincinnati, um, but overall, like they weren't a bad team last year. I think that you know, Kaya getting another year only makes him better, and having a a better system and a better coaching staff. You know, again, with the talent on that roster, only makes them better. Um, I think nine and three is in play. If you're counting the losses being North Carolina, Florida State, and Notre Dame, I think four losses might be more likely. Where you're probably going to lose to Pitt um, because that's on the road um, later in the season. Nope, no, well, not that late. It's actually at home. Sorry, I was reading last year's schedule. Um, Miami is a pretty manageable. Once they get past that, that you know, kind of gauntlet from October eighth through November fifth. That's Florida State, North Carolina, at Virginia Tech, at Notre Dame, and Pittsburgh. Um, if they come out of that and you still have a shot at the Coastal, um, you get to kind of swing through Virginia, NC State, and then host Duke um, to end the year. Uh, so, yeah, I, I've got – I think 8-4 and four is reasonable. But at the same time, like Miami might take some lumps and root, and that could, that could derail part of Mark Rick's first season. But, again, talent. And there's more talent on Miami's roster than – 98% of the country right now. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably right. And uh, the, it's also good for them that uh, he really hasn't lost a step. Just like Al Golden was basically trying to like build himself a wall of recruits uh, where he had like he had the number one class, I think, in like 2018 and 2019 because he was just getting kids to commit, even if they weren't like super like elite talents. He was just like building. A, he like gamed the uh, the rating systems so that it looked like they had these ridiculous classes, and uh, Rick's classes are pretty much just as good. Like they lost some kids, they lost a lot of kids actually when Dolden got fired, as you'd expect. But um, Rick just filled in those holes with guys that are pretty much just as good, and uh, Miami is going to probably sign two top twenty, maybe even top ten recruiting classes in 2017, 2018. So um, I think everything like. Everything that Rich should be doing, he is doing, and things seem to be moving in the right direction. Whether or not that pays off, or how long it takes him to like make that that leap, um, is a major question. But uh, I think if you're a Miami fan, you have to feel pretty good about things. I concur. Now, with a limited amount of time left, uh, we still have two more teams to talk about. We're not talking about Virginia because why would you? Um, I'm sure on a Virginia podcast somewhere, they've said the same thing during their Atlantic Division preview about us. So it's fine. We're just returning the favor. Um, we'll talk Pitt first, quick, and then Virginia Tech. Um, Pittsburgh going to be very good this year. I'm not thrilled about that. Um, there's obviously some rough games. I think you look at that first month. Um, Nova's no pushover, but they're going to win against an FCS school. But Penn State at o- 
Oklahoma State, and I mean the Oklahoma State game being on the road is rough too because I think Oklahoma State is actually a, a decent sleeper in the Big Twelve, and then at at North Carolina, I mean, there's some reality where Pitt's one and three after September. Yeah, I'm actually I, I like Pitt a lot, and uh, this just isn't an ideal schedule for like a team that's looking to kind of break through. Right. Um, like you said, like that Oklahoma State trip is such like that's just a weird game to have, and uh, they probably want that one back. Um, it's also like it's it's kind of tough to totally know what they're going to be. Like James Conner, obviously recovering from cancer, it sounds like he's going to play, which is awesome. Like no matter what he does, if he runs for one yard this year, like it's an amazing story if he plays at all. Um, but if he's like anything close to what he can be, like that's incredible. And he's also coming back from ACL injury, which people like forget. Right. Like he's just he he went through so much over the last ten-ish uh, months. Like it's crazy that he's even in the conversation to play. So good for him. Um, but yeah, Penn State. I, I think they should be Penn State just because they better uh, Penn, Penn State's State. kind of a mess. Yeah, um, I would be kind of terrified though if I was a Pitt fan because they're a favorite in that game, and like you feel like there could be a lot of ups- like letdown potential there. Uh, and then you have, like you said, right off the bat, at Oklahoma State, at North Carolina, not a great way to start the year. Um, even Marshall, like that's not a gimme game. I, I don't know what Marshall's going to be this year really, but they're usually pretty competitive. And then you have Georgia Tech, which you know. Pitt could easily lose to Georgia Tech if Georgia Tech bounces back, like we were talking about. So um, I think Pitt has a lot of potential, but the but coastal like at Miami and at Clemson, right? And it's such as a flat top of the league that you could be a pretty decent team at the top at, at the coastal and just have bad luck, have bad turnover luck, injury luck, and you could wind up being a five and seventeen. Uh, I don't think that'll happen. I think Pitt's really talented, and I think uh, I think Arduzzi like I don't know how long he's going to be at Pitt, but I think he's going to be a really good head coach. Um, I think he's taking so, the Michigan State job. Like, with what do you think Antonio's doing? I, I think Antonio is either going to retire on top or he's, or an SEC school is finally just going to back up the truck. South Carolina. South uh, Carolina should have done it. No, not this South is Carolina. alma mater. See, okay, so South Carolina is a possibility. I know we talked about this before. Um, the school I'd love they to see. They should have done it this past this The school past I'd year. love to see do it, and they have the money to do it, Vandy, just screw it. I, I think Mason's in a, I think Mason might save his job this year. I'm like coming around on Vandy. I don't know if they even make a bowl, but I think they'll be competitive enough, and I think their defense is going to be so stingy that it they might uh, he might save his job. I'm coming around on Vandy. I'd buy it. But it doesn't mean that Mason will be there forever. Like I don't know that he has the the I don't know that he has the ceiling that Franklin does because he doesn't recruit as well, and uh, he's not as much of a stinkwell salesman. Also fair. All right, so that's Pitt. Likely a seven-eight <laughs> win team. Likely a seven-eight win team. good too. <laughs> That's probably going to lose their coach to Vanderbilt or Michigan State. Oh, my God. If you're Pitt and you lose your coach to – if you lose to Michigan State, that's fine. If you lose your coach to Vanderbilt, like, Pitt, Pitt fans might just, like, go – I don't even know what they would do. It would be so funny. I feel really bad for Spilly. Now you already lost your basketball coach to, to TCU, so you can only <laughs> go up true. from there. It's going to be worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last team we're talking about because, again, we're skipping Virginia altogether. Virginia Tech. Uh, we faced Virginia Tech this year for the first time since 2003. Um, the last year that Virginia Tech was in the was it 2003. Yeah, right. It was two, yeah, it was 2003. Was yeah, yeah. We faced them in the Big East. Um, Boston College left after 2004 because of the lawsuit nonsense. Um, anyway, um, Virginia Tech brings in a new coach for the first time in decades. Um, Justin Puente is in. He brings a spread offense uh, that they don't have the personnel for at all, but they do have more speed on the roster, I think, just as baseline than we do. 
Um, they have a lot of returning talent on the offensive end. Um, they bring back everybody except for uh, starting right tackle, um, at least in terms of, yeah, pretty much everyone with the starting right tackle and the quarterback. Um, I'd say that's a pretty good collection of talent. Um, defensively, I think they're the one pro- one of maybe five programs in the country that you never really have to worry about uh, what they've got going on there. Um, I think this is a team that's in transition, but one that in transition they can still win seven or eight games. Um, it's, it feels like if you buy into Virginia Tech, that means you don't buy into Pitt and Georgia Tech, and the same goes for any of those three teams. But I feel like I want to buy into Georgia to Virginia Tech and Pitt as seven or eight win teams, and then just see Georgia Tech as like a six win team. Yeah, I mean, this is like the problem with project, projecting the coastal is that like you could really tell me anything aside from Virginia being good, <laughs> and I will buy it because any of these teams could fall in any place, and it's really hard to. Like the, the top of this league is, and by the top of me, like top five teams, it's going to be so determined by like randomness and injuries and other like weird things that happen off of like the paper that we're looking at now that it's really hard to like nail down the order because it's something small is going to shift uh, where these teams fall completely. Um, Virginia Tech, like, I, I don't know what they'll be this year, but like, it's really hard to have a better. Uh, transition from a legendary coach, like you really can't do it better. You you got to choose your own guy as the AD. You got one of the hottest coaching prospects in the country in Justin Fuente. You kept your DC, who uh, a lot of people thought was just going to be the Nets head coach for a while. Um, you don't have to transition that system at all. You're actually getting a coach with an offensive mind to uh, turn around Memphis, which is incredible if you know anything about Memphis football before 2013. Um, so I don't know that it'll translate into wins right away because Virginia Tech, you know, like any coastal team, they have to face the other four decent ones. Plus they have to face Tennessee, which Tennessee is, could be a monster this year. Um, and they have to face ECU, which is never easy, um, no matter where you play them, uh, and Notre Dame. So I don't know that they're going to have this like huge winning season right away, but I think just having like a competent offense, kind of like what we think with Syracuse, um, I think Virginia Tech's probably a little farther along in terms of uh, talent and their shift is probably going to be a little less drastic, but um, I think Vatek fans will be really happy about that just to start off. And they should be like, they're plenty good enough to win eight, eight games. I think, like you said. Yeah. I mean, and there, there is just too much talent here. I think, you know, again, the schedule might stop them an injury here or there might stop them. But overall, uh, this does seem like a team that is not really going to miss a beat under a new coaching staff. And, you know, it's, I mean, if Virginia Tech can get back to maybe the heights of the Beamer era, you know, we're looking at Virginia Tech seemed to be not, not knocking very hard on the door, but at least, like, tapping on the door uh, of being in that top 20 programs conversation, um, just, like, on an annual basis. Uh, and and I, th- I know some Hokie fans are going to be pissed at me for, for sliding them there, but you're not a top 20 program, like, consistently. Um, I feel like, you know, handing it off to Fuente, and if Fuente's there for a while... Um, you know, you could be looking at, at a, our new reality eventually being tech as top 20 program um, w- w- with some pretty stunning regularity. Yeah, I mean, if Fuente builds it into like where Beamer had it, um, even if it's like a run below, because Beamer, you know, they took him to a national championship team. Um, if he gets even to like where they're going to contend to win 10 games most year, that most years, that's a really tough job to leave because you're in a fairly, right now it's a fairly winnable division. Um, you're in a really nice recruiting area, uh, which isn't totally picked over. Um, I know a lot of schools like Penn State goes down there and Maryland is there and they recruit fairly well for whatever reason. And 
Virginia, you know, is still there. But it's not like you're, you know, in Florida. Um, and it's just like, a, I think it's a pretty, a really nice fan base. So I think if he does get to a place where Virginia Tech is like a consistent top 20, top 15 program, there aren't a ton that you jump to if you're him. Like, there's just not that many that are, like, significantly better. Obviously, there's, you know, a number of SEC teams, but, like, those jobs don't open all that often. Um, and they might have a, another coach for, like, another eight years. Yeah, and it's the realism of the fan base, too, that really helps. I mean, it's one thing if you go to Miami or Florida State or Clemson or even Georgia Tech. Eh, not Georgia Tech. But, like, those three teams, maybe a couple others, like, there's just a demand for excellence, and then once there's a taste of excellence with you as the coach and has to stay there, I think Virginia Tech is willing to take a step back as long as it leads to a step forward. I think that if you told Virginia Tech fans that, you know, you're going to win eight or nine games a year, uh, for the most part, you're going to bump up and win the ACC once every four or five. Like, I don't think you'd find many Hokies fans who would be dissatisfied with that. Yeah, and that's a, that's a decent place to be. Obviously, then you get, if you're there too long, then, you know, expectations get raised and you have the issues that we've seen with, like, Georgia. But um, overall, I mean, I think they would definitely take getting back there. And it hasn't been that long, like, just, what, four or five years ago, they were winning nine, ten games, and, and obviously Beamer got quite stale, um, as anyone does after, like, 25, 30 years. But uh, they they did this transition about as well as you could do it. Like, the, uh, there's a reason why most people who ranked coaching hires had Virginia Tech, if not number one, like, right there. I would concur. And on that front, I think we are good. Um, ran... And Virginia also plays in this division. Okay, we're good. Yeah, Virginia plays in this division somewhere. Um since we're about an hour and ten, I think it's a good place to wrap up. Uh, Dan, thank you as always for joining. Yes, thank you for accommodating my uh, weird week. Happens. All good. Um, that was Dan. I'm John. Thank you for listening to Troy Noons and Absolute Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe. And next week, we will be jumping into the full Syracuse season preview. Um, so that is everybody on the roster, as many people as we can, as long as we stay on topic. I think we will. Um, we'll see if Sean will join us. I know sometimes he tries to make it on for one of these um, when it comes to full season previews. So, yeah, plenty more to come next week. The pressure's on, Keely. <laughs> At Jared, we know devotion isn't a once-a-year occasion. And once the flowers have wilted and the chocolates have disappeared, you'll still want them to know how much you care. Dare to give a gift that lasts this Valentine's Day with our incredible selection of jewelry. From delicate rose gold to bold black diamonds, Jared has hundreds of pieces under $299 and exclusive collections you won't find anywhere else. Shop online or find a store near you at jared.com and dare to be devoted.